As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to a weekend review edition of the Total Soccer Show. With me to break down four games from this weekend, four specific games from this weekend, is Mr. Ryan Bailey. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Tate. Are we just renaming this show the Total Penalty Show now from, from now on? Is that what we're doing? <laughs> I... This game is just penalties with a little bit of soccer around it now. Is that not <laughs> what it is? That that could be the longer title. I think the Total, the total Penalty Show with some soccer around it. Yeah, why not? Yeah. Let's do that. Let's do that. Uh, we right. do have lots of penalties to discuss for sure. Uh, we've got games in the Premier League, in Germany, in Spain, and in Italy. Uh, we're not going to talk Major League Soccer. Uh, decision Day happened this weekend. If you want to hear more about what happened and more specifically why it happened, uh, MLS Assist already has an episode out about what went on, on on Decision Day. But we should say congratulations to the Philadelphia Union, Supporter Shield winners with a Captain America shield, I believe is what I saw Andrew Weeby tweeting yes. today. So well done to them. I think Ryan and I will try to do a little bit more with Major League Soccer and have some more people on uh, as the playoffs begin. Uh, but just wanted to point out, if you do want some more MLS coverage, then MLS Assist has you covered. And with that said, let's talk Premier League, shall we, Mr. Bailey? I would love to. Big few days for Philadelphia, by the way. Big few days. Yeah, yeah. Not, not a bad couple of days. Not a bad couple of days. Uh, th- <laughs> things, things good in Philly with dancing mailboxes. I enjoyed the dancing mailboxes. I enjoyed Gritty's appearance as well. And I did enjoy the union uh, becoming supporter shield winners. Uh, I should also note, uh, while we're doing a little bit of like ha- uh, housekeeping up front, I think Ryan and I are slowly, not even slowly, but just like kind of evolving the weekend review based on how we think it works best, what we think works best. And if people have noticed, we've sort of gone away from the we're going to talk about 12 different games and lots of different things because from my perspective, it makes it harder to really focus in and see what was happening. Instead, I feel like we get caught up in the should that have been a penalty? Why did this happen? But not really explaining the overall game. So I think we're trying to sort of winnow down the approach to find the games that we think really are of substance or have uh, things that need to be said about them or are really interesting for whatever reason. So we've got Four, as I said, but wanted to have that out up front to then say, Ryan, Man City-Liverpool, a one-to-one draw that seemed for a moment like it might be 4-to-4 and then was not. 
This was a game of two halves, if you'd, yes, uh, I will. If you'd like to use a cliche to start mm-hmm. off the show. Very, very interesting game. Obviously, probably the biggest Premier League game of the weekend. After that first half, even the commentary team were like, oh, I can't wait for yeah. another 45 minutes of this, because it was pretty breakneck stuff, and sort of a couple of 4-2-3-1s going up against each other, with, well, I suppose Liverpool almost doing a, a 4-2-4, with Diego Jota mm-hmm. playing uh, alongside Zabig a 3, which was an interesting and bold move from Jurgen Klopp. Uh, uh, and it almost yeah. went to a four-four-two in the second half, I suppose, with Liverpool because when they when they both changed things up, this this game, Taylor, it was curious because I was also excited for a more thrilling second half than we got. Why do you think it calmed down so much? My, I've got a couple theories which I'll lay out for you. I do as well. But actually, if you don't mind, I wanted to start with just the goals because I do think that also gives us a little bit of a blueprint for what then happens in Go the ahead. second half. Uh, and those first two goals, uh, Liverpool obviously going ahead via a penalty. But I thought you could see little things of what they were trying to do here of obviously creating overloads, uh, of creating patterns that then Man City would maybe buy into that then they could exploit. Because I do think for the the penalty itself, Kyle Walker thinks it's going to be a one-two between Sadio Mane and Andy Robertson or Andy Mm. Robertson to Mane back to Robertson. And I think he, he steps to try to win that ball to intercept it. And Mane instead turns. Then Walker has to make a scrambling play ends up making the contact, and we do have a penalty. And I think that, to me, stands out because I think Liverpool had targeted trying to go after City early and to try to get ahead early. And I think the way they planned to do that was by changing the formation, as you've already alluded to, and having players kind of pop up in different spots. Sometimes Jota is a right winger, sometimes he's a central midfielder. And I think that sort of like overload and the uncertainty and fluidity was meant to cause problems, and I think it did. I think for Man City... I think the commentators, as they scored, were talking about how they were playing a little bit too slow and weren't switching the ball enough. Mm -hmm. And I think that's exemplified by their goal, which comes from a big switch across that pulls out Wijnaldum. It allows Kevin De Bruyne to have space. He does a great job of finding uh, Gabriel Jesus in the middle, who then, I I still think he means it. I could be wrong, but I feel like he means to kind of do a Cruyff (laughs) turn and put it into his own path, but he scores. But I think there were... There were just moments of the teams kind of going back and forth at each other, adjusting their shape as they needed to, but then overcommitting and trying to scramble. And that's what kind of created this frenetic energy almost. We have the penalty at the end of the half, and that could have changed things as well. But I think there was an intensity to that first half that I don't think was sustainable in the second. And I think that was almost deliberate. I think both both managers were trying to get a lead to then be able to sit back and frustrate and counter and maybe get the result that way. And I don't think it ended up working out. But I think that high energy first half is part of the reason why we have a slightly lower energy second half. Yeah, it was fascinating to watch sort of what what they were doing. It was kind of both managers trying to match each other, as you say, with Liverpool creating the overloads and coming out of the box very quickly. Coming out, of the, you know, coming out swinging, I should say, was for the first sort of ten or fifteen minutes, it was pretty furious from then. And you could see what they were trying to do to Manchester City. Or, or, pretty much throughout the game, mm-hmm. which was, you know, the keystone of a Manchester City side, of a Pep Guardiola side, is your defensive midfielders or your defensive midfielder. And they basically, you know, blocked Rodrigo and blocked Gundogan from doing anything. Mm-hmm. And if you take them out of the game, then it really sort of nullifies what Manchester City are trying to do. So that was kind of the key thing there. But then you could see sort of Manchester City reacting slowly. And I, I don't know if you noticed this, Taylor, but like, Okay, Gundogan, for example, mm-hmm. was way higher up the field than he'd usually be. He was kind of sort of trying to find that space, drifting out of position. There were plenty of moments where he was ahead of Kevin De Bruyne, where he wouldn't have necessarily have done that in a typical 
City four through three or whatever they however yeah. they'd set up. And can I know, just double down on that to say that the the reason why Kevin De Bruyne finds space for that City equalizer is because uh, a, a player for City has made a run through that both Andy Robertson and Joel Matip are paying attention to and thus not mm. focusing on Kevin De Bruyne. And that player was Ilkay Gundogan. So yes, in that case, he is literally further forward, takes defenders with him, and opens up space for Kevin De Bruyne. I'm with you that I think there was an intentional effort to get him more involved in the attack. Yeah, definitely. And it, it did seem like um, certainly City sort of found the most space on that right-hand channel yeah. uh, for, and, and ha- had the most success there. It was curious how things did kind of slow down. And, and I'll, I'll uh, put on my theories here. I think they were all just really tired. <laughs> you can yes. see it certainly in Kevin De Bruyne. They just look really tired. You can see it was raining for the whole of the first half. and pe- The pitch was probably more heavy than it was slick. And I think more than anything else, we'd seen these two managers going up against each other, matching each other almost pound for pound in this first half, and both sort of going, a draw would be okay here, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was essentially the vibe I got from that second half. It was, let's both you know, ease off the gas pedal a little bit and uh, take the point and, and not risk uh, conceding another goal. So an, an intriguing battle for two different reasons in two different halves. Yeah, I think afterwards uh, the 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 like post match interview person was asking Guardiola what he and Klopp had talked about because they had a little like conversation at the end of the game and he said it's about the five substitutes like he said it pretty quickly mm-hmm. and just about their frustration. Klopp spoke about fixture congestion and scheduling and the fatigue that that's led to. How five substitutions would alleviate that? Obviously, the big clubs competing in Europe voted in favor of five subs. The smaller clubs maybe sensing that that could be slightly imbalanced, voted against it, so it doesn't end up happening. But I think you can see the reason why those larger clubs wanted it, because if you're coming from a midweek game, uh, Klopp, or Guardiola, I forget which one, was quick to point out that like Tottenham had played on Thursday and were already playing very early on the weekend. And mm. just even, even if you are giving them... If they're having a midweek game and they're playing Sunday, but you're doing an earlier kickoff, those couple hours make a difference. I think Klopp said, like, we wake up and we're playing and we're not ready for it. Um, and I think maybe you could argue, like, ah, you're professionals, you got to be ready for it. But with the amount of games they're playing and the lack of substitutions or those extra substitutions like you have in every other league, it does seem as though managers have to do the calculation of, do we really go for it? Do we risk getting exposed? Do we risk picking up another injury that then confounds us further? And so you kind of have to balance all that out. And I think if you're doing that math in the second half, you're maybe less focused on how do I make this one become three points, as opposed to, as you've already said, how do we make sure that we get at least one point out of it? This is something that we said at the start of the season, Taylor. It's a crazy fixture congestion we're going to have this season. You know, it's already, the yeah. Premier League season is already a month shorter than it should have been. And we're having Champions League games, you know, every, every week, basically. And we've got an, another pretty needless international break coming up right now, which is a whole other conversation. <laughs> but as you say, Jürgen Klopp saying, <laughs> oh, I dare, I dare. <laughs> but Jürgen Klopp saying that, you know, they had the Merseyside derby when some of his players had just got back from South America for the last international yeah. breaks. And that's, Thank you. They're, they're, yeah. they're, really, they're really feeling the heat at the moment. Obviously, they've got, you know, Fabinho out. They've got Virgil van Dijk out. They've got Trent Alexander-Arnold picking up a, uh, an, an injury in this game as well. They're feeling the kind of strain that Man- Manchester City felt when Emmerich Laporte went out. Um, and I think, you know, it could have a similar detrimental effect for them. First of all, thank you for clarifying. I, like, I kind of zoned out for a minute, I think, when, when Klopp was talking. And I heard him say, like, we have men coming back from Peru. And I was That's like, it. you guys played a Champions League game in Peru? <laughs> like, when did that happen? <laughs> I totally missed it. So that makes way more sense. Okay, I'm with you now. Like, is that, uh, I think Ian Wright on Match of the Day was saying that he would like to see it, that uh, I don't think this is even possible. 
But he was saying it made sense to him to have it be that like teams that are participating in Europe, if they're playing against another team participating in Europe, they should be allowed to have five subs. And then if you're playing a team, like if if then Liverpool's playing Burnley, you then go back to three subs each. Uh, but it gives you like a little bit of an incentive. I don't again, I don't think that's possible because I think it requires an IFAB rule or FIFA to allow uh, a special you know like concession or something like that. But would you like to see a little bit of experimentation to make sure that these teams? are able to feel the full team and a fully fit team at that near the end of the season? No, absolutely not. I think that's really, that's a terrible rule. That's a really bad, I, I like Ian Wright, but that's a terrible suggestion. It just seemed a little the, strange to me. You're giving a huge advantage to the big teams there, basically. You can have five subs, but no one else can. What no, kind of Five subs against that? each other. So it's like oh. Liverpool versus City, you each get five. Liverpool versus Burnley, yeah, but- now you each only get three. All right, that's still nonsense. It still completely ruins the integrity of the Premier League if for some games you're allowed five subs and some you're not. Come on, Ian, right? Come on. It did feel a little bit like a, a half-baked idea that like they threw to him and he was like, oh, what about this? Uh, but I just wanted to throw it out there because I, I would like to see maybe this revisited in January or just like them take another look as, as we reach the midpoint. Because I think even even the teams that are playing with a smaller budget or with fewer you know big name players, I think are still going to run into this same problem as they have even in just a normal season. If you don't have Europe, you have two different cups you're in. You've got the Premier League. You're going to have a couple different games where you're playing one game and then two days later another game and then three days another game. You're going to pick up injuries, and I think as more teams start to feel that pain a bit, maybe we'll start to see uh, more of an openness to looking at other options. I wonder if more injuries and more fatigue means also more penalties. Because as we've alluded to, there were a lot of penalties this weekend. Mm -hmm. I believe I saw a count of 33 penalties in the top five leagues this weekend. We had two alone in this game. We don't need to dwell too much on the instance or whatnot, but it's interesting to see how much they have increased and how there will be an element of gamesmanship coming into the games Mm -hmm. in terms of uh, how to win them, I think. The The one thing I would like to say about penalties... Taylor, in particular in this game, the camera angle they had. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, uh, 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 um, that the Etihad here. Did you notice it was kind of that FIFA camera angle with the spider cam? And as I, the I noticed ha- it happens, somewhat. I can't say that I was like super focused on it. So for people who missed it, or people like me who maybe were just sort of focusing in on, oh, he's going to score this right, and then being yeah. confused that he didn't. What did you like specifically about it? What was so different? Well, so typically. When you see a penalty on, mm-hmm. on TV, you see it from the sideline, don't you? You see the, the, you know, the, the side angle of the penalty. But this spider cam, which is hovering over the middle of the field, um, it is literally like a FIFA video game, how you'd see it from behind, from as if you were controlling the player taking the kick. So you get a much better perspective of the goalkeeper and the goal taker, the penalty mm-hmm. taker. And just the way they sort of zoom the ball, zoom the camera in as the run-up was happening as well, it just was really cool. And I liked it a lot. And... Um, it made Kevin De Bruyne look all the worse for missing his penalty as well, which was a bit of a surprise, wasn't it? I guess that's why Kevin De Bruyne doesn't always take penalties, because that was one of my frustrations. Why does he never take them? Oh, that's why. Yeah, I think it's the first player to not hit the target on a, penal- on a penalty this season, so not wow. great for him. I will say this about this result, which did seem like it could go either way. Both teams had their opportunities. It finishes 1-1. to And with a couple other games we're going to talk about this weekend... I think because of the fixture congestion we've already talked about, because of the fatigue and the injuries and the fact that we're going to still have international breaks and players going but maybe not going and being released but then not being released, I I think we're just going to have more strange results. And to some extent, I think it's our job to look at those results and figure out, was this a... 
a failure of the system? Was like the manager getting something wrong? Is there a problem that needs to be addressed? Or was this maybe just like, yeah, it's a weird season. And this one to me felt like it's a weird season that both teams had ideas for what they wanted to do. Some of them worked. Some of them did not. Some of the kind of overloads and isolations and then diving in worked for one, didn't work for the other. But generally speaking, I just I don't have as like big of a the title race is wide open or I can't believe City did this. City are in, in shambles now. It, it just it feels more like, yeah, both teams are OK with a one to one draw. There's lots of other games still to go. Both managers kind of frustrated. It was raining pretty hard. Mm. I, I don't want to read too far into that one. Are you OK with my sort of like relaxed approach to things just because I don't want to rush to judgment too quickly? Yeah, I mean, you should be more relaxed than Pep should, obviously. The worst starts for the league season since 2008. They're very much, much lower in the league table than they expect to be. And we can chalk it off to a very odd season. We did know there was going to be a bit more parity this season. And, you know, that we didn't we didn't expect Southampton to be top of the league table at this point at one point this weekend. But hey, crazy times. But but I mean, there are also other factors in here. Like you see the players are getting tired. You see Kevin De Bruyne is tired Mm -hmm. and Phil Foden still not you know, getting involved. There, there, there are things you can do to remedy this. You can use your subs if you want to. Uh, what, did <laughs> make one sub? He made one sub. Yeah. So, and, and, and Klopp made two. So they can talk about having five all they want, but, you know, utilize the ones you got. It's a good point. It's a good point. And I, I imagine that this was Pep maybe like wanting to try a specific thing. And so he then is hesitant to like change it out and go revert back to the norm. Uh, but, but I'm with you though, that you, it's, Strange to complain about not having enough substitutes when you're not then using the substitutes you do have. That's a very good point. But we can say we are going to get some strange results, some sort of unexpected conclusions to games. We've talked about a few of those. I will say the next game we're going to talk about, I think, went a bit more to script. Anything you else? Anything else you'd like to talk about from Man City 1, Liverpool 1? Uh, just one more point. Please. Gabriel Jesus, I'm delighted to see him back in full flow. And uh, that goal was excellent. The setting him up for himself with the first touch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. He meant it. He didn't mean it. Whatever. It was a good goal. But the headed chance he had later on yeah. in the game with absolutely no one near him. A player of his caliber had no excuse not to bury that. I'm sorry. That should have been a goal. I, I do enjoy, I think I've talked about this before, like I enjoy watching the close-ups of players, both when they score and when they don't, to see like how do they react? Who's the first one to jump off the bench? And I enjoyed that one because you could see him sort of like look around really briefly of like, is there anybody else that I can blame for that one? Like, And then realizing <laughs> like, no, it's just on me. I should have done better. And you can see like hands to the face, eyebrows up, like, I'm sorry, that's on me, that's on me. So at least was, he was uh... able to kind of take the uh, take the lesson there, I think. Yeah, it was like Ralph Wiggum. You could actually freeze frame the moment his heart broke at that point. (laughs) So I guess congratulations to both managers for a point there. Uh, We will get to Germany in just a moment. But first, let's pause for a word from today's sponsor. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Thank you very much to today's sponsor, Indochino. Let's talk about Dortmund 2, Bayern Munich 3. And this one I do want to start from a broader perspective for a moment, Ryan, because with Men City Liverpool... I have some thoughts of like, okay, this could happen. This could be an overload. This could go a certain way. With Dortmund-Bayern, at least in the league, 
I think I always approach these games as like, okay, Bayern are probably going to win. Let's <laughs> see what Dortmund can do. Do you have that same sort of overriding idea when you go into these? Because I can't help but watch these and be like, oh, Dortmund, like plucky Dortmund are finding a way through as opposed to there's two teams who are both very good on the pitch and let's see what happens. Yeah, I think you can take the approach of uh, Bayern are probably going to win, but let's see what X can do in mm-hmm. every single one of their true, games, to true. be fair. <laughs> Not just uh, the, uh, this particular uh, derby clash. But, I mean, Bayern are the best team in Europe right now. Are you gonna are you going to argue with that at all? I don't think so. I mean, I think there are like the reasons why I think they're they're more vulnerable than they were last season, but most of those are injury related. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if you have them at their full full strength team, I think absolutely they are. And then you look at what happens in this game and how they kind of patch the team together and still find a way to get a result. And yes, I think you're absolutely correct. Yeah. And I, I just think that not only are they sort of technically and, you know, the uh, superior and, and they, they've been fantastic for several months now but they had really strong mentality in this game this was albeit no fans but this was an away game they you know they lose Joshua Kimmich in, in this game and it looks like he's had a successful surgery if, I've, mm-hmm. if I'm reading that correctly uh, in, in meniscus I believe yeah yes I think it's January probably we're going to yep. see him again so that's a huge loss for them they think they go a goal up through Robert Lewandowski's goal but it's ruled off because his eyelash is offside or whatever <laughs> um, and from a really nicely uh, set up move from Serge Nabry, blah blah blah. So to go from that and then to come back and you know, or to go ahead and win this game three two, I think it's really really impressive from a mentality standpoint. So I- I'm very impressed with Bayern at least in that respect. Yeah, I- I- let's focus in on a few of those for a moment. Let's start with Joshua Kimmich, who was the immense Joshua Kimmich that we've come to expect. We have, uh, is it, is it, it's not Bruno Sar, right? I always want to call him Bruno, but it's not. It's like Bruno Sar, right? Yeah. Okay. Either way, he wasn't great. He was not. <laughs> and he does maybe show us why they were so focused on getting Serginho Dest before losing him to Barcelona. But yeah. the, the commentators in this game, uh, I think it was Taylor Twelman pointed out that having Sar in there allows you to keep Kimmich central. And I think we see why they were so focused on doing that because for the time he's on the pitch, he is constantly sweeping in front of that back line, putting out fires, tracking runners, throwing in tackles at the last minute when you don't expect him to get there, but then still contributing to the attack and playing really incisive passes and long balls. And you just see everything he does. And I set all that up to say that then when you see him go down, trying to break up that counterattack, it's a, it's a collision with, I believe, uh, Holland. Seems unlikely he's going to win that in a 50-50, but there you go. He goes down, is in obvious pain. Uh, I thought for sure it was ACL. He does try to walk off and then ends up having to get sort of support uh, to be able to get off the field. And I thought, that's it. That's his season done. So it's really good that it's not. But I thought then, at the very least, that's this game done because – you can't really replace that. I don't know how they kind of continue to find a way back, especially after the penalty, or after the goal was chalked off. And yet, Tolisso comes in and looks just fine. Bayern mm-hmm. do what they do and find a way through. And, and that, I think, again, goes to your earlier point that even with the injuries, even with some of the positional uncertainty, even with Saar having, I would say, a bad game, they still are able to beat one of, if not their closest rivals for the title. Yeah, and this was a very evenly matched game. I think it was sort of 14 shots to 15 shots. It was almost exactly 50% possession between these two sides. A very uh, The best game of the weekend, I'd probably say. Very entertaining. It had two good halves, Manchester City. Two good <laughs> halves. Um, and, and as you say, for, for by minute to keep it together, having having had that setback. And it was interesting. I mean, Luca Hernandez had a good had a pretty good game on the other on the other fullback flank, but Saar. 
he he gave um, our boy Gio Reyna quite a good opportunity, didn't he? When he sort of did that. Yeah. That thing that when you're playing rec league, you never want to do when you're defending, that sort of aimless header up in the air, which is yeah. always a nightmare. Yeah, he, he did not have the best game. I thought Giorena had an okay game. I think a lot of it was that Dortmund's attack seemed to be Howland is very big and very fast. Bayern are going to play a high line. We think we can find space behind. And they did. They kept getting chances. What I found really interesting, and I don't, this isn't necessarily a criticism of Holland, it's just a, a difference, is he did keep getting opportunities, but so many of them were, I'm going to assume, pretty low percentage, the XG on them probably pretty low, from yeah. very tight angles that always kind of rolled just wide of the post, or sometimes not that just wide of the post. But either way, when he does still get chances, very few of them are sort of straight on at the goalkeeper. When they are, he scores them. And I just contrast that with Robert Lewandowski, who it just feels like all he needs to be is vaguely in the vicinity of goal and get one touch, and he'll find a way to put it on target at the very least. Yeah, case in point, the, the second goal, his header. Mm-hmm. What an incredible header that is. I think you have to sort of watch it a few times to appreciate the technique there. He, it doesn't really have a right to get such a good... No angle on it does he it's incredible stuff from uh, who was it was it Luke? i think it was luke hernandez who got the assist on that one with the cross wasn't it mm-hmm. just there's there's absolutely no defending against that and as much as harlan does stuff you can't defend against that was just a plus technique that was one of the best moments of the game for sure. i agree with you and i would say you're absolutely right it was hernandez with a great ball in it's a great header from Lewandowski. the other key component here was it's a really great ball it's i forget daryl and i had a term for it but it's sort of like when you have a ball like maybe 25 to 30 yards from goal and you're like in the center of the pitch, but you're kind of have that chipped ball out wide, like into the diagonal space for somebody to run onto. And it does. It goes over the defenders of Dortmund. That's where Hernandez is able to run onto it and then play it in. That ball comes from Tolisso, and it's a ball that I would expect Joshua Kimmich to be able to pull off every single time. And that you have Tolisso come in and do the exact same thing again, I think, shows you the quality that's there for Bayern in a number of different spots. And I, I think that was just sort of telling to me as the game went on that it felt like you could see moments of both teams with the counter press and there were moments I think I tracked one where it was a counter 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 press <laughs> like that's how many <laughs> counters there were and then that got to us about the 23rd minute and then for the next like seven minutes everything just slowed way down because I yeah. think both teams were maybe not quite as comfortable or I think maybe Bayern were not quite as comfortable with the run and gun approach and tried to slow things down and, but I still think we get a sort of back and forth and interesting game. It wasn't just, okay, now we're going to kill the game off and everything's going to be boring. Still lots to talk about in this game. And I just, I really did enjoy it. I think you're right. It's probably the best game of the weekend. Um, the chipped ball like that for 25 yards to, to a flank. Mm-hmm. A Beckham ball, can we call it that? But aren't his like from wide and then like the big swinger yeah. into the box? Like, I think that's what I think of with the Beckham ball. I don't know who he does, else He does can like do to one. chip and spray them, maybe not from a central position. You're right. I'll think harder on that one. Can we talk about the Sane goal, the third goal for, for sure. Bayern Munich? Because that was an example of the, the, the speed and the, the, mm-hmm. the breakneck countering that you're, you're referring to there. A really good counter from Bayern Munich from the edge of uh, their own box. I think it was Hernandez again, who was very good in this game, made the intercept, uh, well, sort of won the loose mm-hmm. ball, shall we say. And you've got Lewandowski waiting in between the lines, sort of in, in midway through the third of the field. And Dortmund's midfielder a bit too high up to catch up with him. It comes this four-on-two overload situation with Bayern Munich. Lewandowski carries the ball through, and it's a really nice finish from Arjun Robin. I mean Leroy Sane, um, <laughs> cutting, cutting in to, uh, to finish there. But there was another little detail on this goal. Did you notice Erling Haaland in this goal, Tete? No. So, obviously, it was a, a lightning-quick break. So, you want to try and... And it was four on two by the time it got into the final third. 
Erlen Haaland ran from his own box, absolutely sprinted across the field, and he was the one who almost got in the interception on Sane. And the, the legs on him, for a guy his size, we've said this before, it was absolutely incredible that he was the quickest Dortmund player to try and get back. Yeah. And I think that's so indicative of the kind of player he is. He's not just your number nine who's going to goal hang. He's, he wants to try and get back and defend as well. It was very, very impressive for him. Not so. Uh, I don't think Le- uh, Leon Gretzka was so impressed because as Erling Haaland was steam trading it through the middle, he completely wiped out Leon Gretzka. So if you haven't seen that, oh, uh, yes. take, take a look at that goal again. It's yeah. quite amusing. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, Holland is so strange because he is so fast. They talked about it a number of different times. I believe was the fastest player on the pitch in this game, but is so big and has those legs mm. that it almost at times looks like he's not moving that fast. Whereas sometimes with like shorter players, you see those legs kind of turn into turbo mode. So I just keep thinking he's not that fast. And then suddenly he's 15 yards of a player who three seconds ago was 15 yards ahead of him. And it's yeah. a good reminder that, yeah, he can do all of those things. Uh, he does end up getting the goal in the 83rd minute, Holland. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't end up mattering as much since Bayern get the 3-2 to win. I want to go back to the end of the first half, if you don't mind, to talk about the two goals and how that half played out. Yeah, go ahead. Are we going to start with Marco Royce's uh, goal here? We are indeed, but mostly we're gonna we're gonna uh, focus in on Bunasar, who has a giveaway here that allows for this Dortmund counterattack. Again, I think this is the the sort of gig and pressing in action because it's Bayern getting the ball back, trying to counter. Sar gives the ball away, and then Dortmund counter the counter, which ideally is when your opponent is most confused because they're out of position already, and then more out of position on the counter. That's where kind of space opens up, and it's. It's a calm finish from Marco Royce. He does not have one of those at the very end of the game when he could have equalized. Uh, so good finishing here, not so much at the end. Yeah. But at this point, I thought, like, okay, this is it for Dortmund. This is exactly what they needed. 1-0 heading into halftime. You can kind of change things up as you need to. Bayern are going to be a little bit more under pressure in the second half. And then I think, basically, when we cut back from the replays of the goal and everything that happened, we have Bayern on the ball moving it very quickly, and that leads to a foul, a free kick, and a goal for Bayern. Uh, I want to really drill into the the free kick, if you're with me, unless you have anything else to say about the build-up to this one. Uh, no, the, the, the training ground routine. Talk yes. us through it. Yes, uh, I will. So you've got a couple different players standing over top of it. I think Gnabry's in there. I think Lewandowski's in there. Yeah. I think Alaba is in there, obviously, since he, he is the one who ends up scoring. But my favorite thing about this is you have the three of them on the ball. As the wall is being set up and the ref is reminding everybody not to shove each other, which is the thing they have to do now, apparently, you see Thomas <laughs> Muller maybe three yards like south of where that uh, group of players is. They're huddled up talking about what to do with the free kick, and you can see him pointing at his feet like, pass me the ball, pass me the ball, pass me the ball. And it was one of those things where, like, you normally, if you're, like, a defender and you hear the opposition player screaming, I'm wide open, play me the ball, you at least maybe want to keep an eye on that one. And here, like, you can see Muller calling for it. And then they sort like, Robert Lewandowski looks over and gives him a quick nod, and then he stops immediately. And I think yeah. that was the communication of, like, you're giving it away. We know what we're doing. We're playing you the ball. Calm down. And that is exactly <laughs> what happens. It's a disguise. There's a decoy run. Then it's played in, and Muller sets it up. It's a great hit by Alaba. I think it does take a deflection on the way through. But that little bit of sort of awareness from Thomas Muller, but then awareness from that uh, that group of three to say, like, we know, calm down. I just thought that was fascinating because as the referee blows the whistle for the kick to be taken, I was just saying, they're going to play it to Muller. They're going to play it to Muller. It's going to Muller. I know that's going to happen. And I think if Dortmund had maybe just paid a little bit more attention to that one quick interchange, they know somebody's got to step to him because that ball is going to Thomas Muller. And that's exactly what happened. That's interesting because I didn't really pick up on the Muller thing. All I saw when that was happening was 
Lewandowski's going to smash this at 100 miles an hour. <laughs> and he, he was the first one to do the dummy and ran over it. So that, yeah. that, that was, it, it even caught me out as well. So a very, very good routine and, and a good finish from uh, David Alaba as well. Um, and on that, on that first goal, if we can go back to that, just with, with Marco Royce getting it, it that, is, that is the point where, as you say, Borussia Dortmund are very confident. It's is less than 10 minutes after Yuzu Kimmich has gone off. They must be thinking we've, we, we've got some opportunities here. But that was that was the story of this game. Opportunities and not taking them. Yep. As I say, Dortmund, I believe, had 15 shots, maybe 13 from open play. And Michael Royce didn't do himself any favours when he missed the city you referred to at the end where he sort of put it over the bar. And this is the kind of thing, when you play Bayern Munich, you have to take your chances. Yep. Dortmund created plenty of chances. They simply didn't take them, and that's why they had no points from this game. That's the, that's the headline, isn't it? Yeah, it absolutely is. I think that's about all I have to say on that note. Anything else you'd like to talk about from Dortmund 2, Bayern Munich 3? No, my pithy review is, is, is in, and we'll I, let that one sit. I like that review. I liked it a lot. <laughs> this episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. I also like today's sponsor. Let's talk about them for a moment. Let's talk about Credible. Credible Credible.com is an online marketplace that allows borrowers with student loan debt to see refinancing rates across a variety of lenders. Uh, Credible would like to remind folks to check student loan refinancing rates, find a rate and a lender that works for them, and ultimately refinance their student loans to get a bit more money, to get a little bit of financial security, and just breathe a little bit easier. Some benefits of using Credible to refinance your student loans are that you see actual pre-qualified rates from multiple lenders, whereas with some online marketing places, we won't mention them, you'll get ranges of rates or ballpark estimates, and it only takes a couple of minutes to check rates, and checking rates doesn't impact your credit. They're so confident, Taylor, they are so confident they have the best rates, they'll give you 200 bones. That's a that's a English for dollars. If you don't close a loan with a better rate elsewhere, $200 if you close a loan with a better rate elsewhere. They'll never sell your data, so you don't receive spam and phone calls from dozens of lenders. Sounds They're good. as capable and consistent as Robert Lewandowski. I'll say that much. Uh, you can visit Credible.com slash TSS. That's C-R-E-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash TSS. And when you refinance your student loans via Credible, they'll give you a $200 gift card. You fill in a few pieces of information to check what rates you are eligible for. And again, that is Credible.com slash TSS. Refinance your student loans and start saving today. Ryan, do you want to finish us out with the, uh, the terms and conditions and whatnot? Uh, message from Credible Operations Inc. Not available in all states. Terms, <laughs> dis- terms and conditions apply. Visit credible.com slash TSS for details. Gift card may be for Cheesecake Factory, and that's okay because I like Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> Thank you very much to Credible for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. 
Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Thank you to Valencia for, you are correct in saying that Dortmund Bayern was probably the most like comprehensively compelling game, but Valencia Real Madrid was the most fascinating game in my mind because it finishes four to one, not to Madrid the way you might have expected, the way I certainly expected, but four one to Valencia. Ryan has some notes for this game. None of them mentioned uh, Yunus Musa, which is unacceptable because we have an American beating Real Madrid four to one. It was all him. I think we can agree the United States is winning the World Cup. It's not the, the lack of him in my show notes, Taylor, is not related to the fact that he's betrayed England and switched allegiances <laughs> to the US MNT. It's nothing to do with that at all. Nothing to do with that at all. So uh, let's anyway start talking about Real Madrid, shall we? Real Madrid, who conceded four goals. Mm-hmm. Not only was this a unique uh, victory for Valencia because they got a hat trick of penalties, yeah. uh, uh, Carlos Soler got a hat trick of penalties, but each of Real Madrid's conceded goals were the responsibility of uh, each one of their four defenders. Three of them conceded penalties. The other one scored an own goal. That doesn't happen very often. That's impressive fail. It really uh, is. Here is is the crazy thing I will say is like my major takeaway from this game is that it is undeniably a bad result for Real Madrid, dropping three points and this scoreline very bad. Mm. I don't think it was a bad game necessarily from them. And I think for reasons that you've already talked about, that Valencia's goals are three penalties and an own goal. And I, I think Madrid, for their part, have chances. They create opportunities. It just felt like every single time Valencia went at the Madrid goal, there was some sort of calamitous mistake or just strange, weird VAR mistake that led to problems for Madrid. And so up until about the 56 minute, I thought like, okay, but Madrid have still played sort of the game they wanted to play. Valencia have been fortunate. Don't get me wrong. They take their chances. They've got to make those chances happen. I'm not trying to be discourteous to Valencia, but it still seemed like Madrid are still are doing what they want to do. They're just getting unlucky. And then the wheels kind of fall off for those last 30 minutes, and there's another penalty conceded. There's some sort of cheap shots taken, and that's where I think the the wheels fall off a little bit. But for those opening 60... I was mostly just fascinated by the way this went and how Madrid at times looked so solid and then still conceded four. 
Well, I think as solid as they look, Taylor, they they did have uh, some some weaknesses in this lineup from the outset. True. And I think the the weak position, and I know I always look at this this position for weakness. It's defensive midfield. It's the pivot mm-hmm. with Modric and Valverde in there, not having Casemiro and not having Tony Kroos in there. It it didn't really help the defence very much. So the defence gave away three penalties and an own goal. I would argue that they didn't have much protection for them. And Inisco even in front of them. So you've mm. got the three players in front of them, Valdodi, Modric, Inisco. Not many of those are helping with defensive duties. Certainly not Isco. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, they, you know those, those are the kind of players who are used to having a Casemiro, someone who's got their back when they go on adventures and whatnot. And they didn't have that in this game. So a pretty poor... Well, it couldn't be helped in, in many ways, but you know, not a great setup for Real Madrid from the start. Tony Cross did come on, but a little bit too late mm-hmm. for this one. Yeah, I would say. yeah, I think I think you're probably right because I will be like honest here and say I was really enjoying everything I saw from Federico Valverde, who does play for Casemiro. Casemiro and Aiden Hazard both missing because of coronavirus. Mm. But I think I was focusing mostly on what Valverde was doing on the ball or as Madrid attacked, which is. Now that I think about it, slightly silly because that is obviously not what you're focusing on when it's Casemiro in that role. You're thinking, you're looking at how does he sort of slow down counters? How does he plug up the middle? How does he fill in space between the two center backs or sort of shield that back line? And that isn't as much what I was focused on with Valverde, probably because I still had this idea of, but Madrid are creating chances and look very good. They're going to find a way to win this one, right? So you're absolutely right that when you lose that sort of linchpin that unites the defense, it's then not surprising that there are individual mistakes and fundamental problems. I think we can maybe talk about a few of those now, if that works for you, because I don't think we need to go through each penalty and what happened and was it right or anything like that. Uh, But I do think a point you've already made is that maybe some of the roster lineup selections that Zidane goes with do factor into some of these decisions. Yeah, and as I say, those two in front of the defence were Mm -hmm. were a big issue for me, but also the fullbacks in this one. You've got Lucas Vasquez, who's not naturally in his natural position uh, uh, um, uh, back at the right there. Mm But more importantly, the mm. left-back Martello, who did not have a vintage performance in this game. Oh, no? In... You didn't no. think so? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I looked it up, and, um, the, you know, with, with Mondi in that position, they are pretty solid in terms of the results they get. Not mm. so much when Marcelo plays lately. He was out of position quite a lot. It was, you know, Sergio Ramos was getting dragged out to cover him uh, quite a lot, and... It, it was just a, that was a sort of a, a weakness for Real Madrid. And it had me wondering why did they sell Sergio Reguilón to Tottenham when they've got Marcelo a little bit past his prime? I couldn't quite figure that one out. It's an odd one. I, I guess they they thought like with Mendy and then Marcelo backing him up, that's all we need. Uh, I think maybe they're still sort of intent on utilizing. Marcelo as a very attack-minded fullback, and I'm going to guess that that's what Zidane thought this game would be, is that we're going to have more of the ball, we're going to be going at them, Valencia are struggling for any number of reasons, though one of them is not Javi Gracia, who's doing an amazing job there with very limited resources, but I think they think Marcelo's going to be committed forward, we want Isco there because they've got the relationship, they can combine well, we're going to get a bunch of goals, this is going to be no problem. And to some extent that's true, in that that first goal comes from Marcelo making a really good run, like an overlapping run wide, and then inside. He gets the ball from Benzema. Defenders yeah. kind of commit to him. Benzema holds his position, gets the ball back from Marcelo. So it's Marcelo engaging in the attack that opens up a little bit more space for Benzema to score. And man, what a goal that was. I can talk about that later on. But man, Kareem Benzema, he's real good. But anyway. You do like those rockets when he fires them off. Very enjoyable. You yes, know, we're going to talk right. about it right now. Kareem Benzema is a player that like <laughs> I, I struggle with 
sort of similar to Robert Lewandowski because like what they do so well is score goals that like it's tough to watch them and see like what are they doing like what is this thing that they do and here with Benzema I think what I can say is that he makes an incredibly difficult sequence of events look so pedestrian that first of all like the presence of mind to slow it down wait for Marcelo to make that run and then play it into him that's great then to sort of faint like he's going to run into the box drop off a little bit open up and so that he gets the return pass from Marcelo that's really good but then the next level part of this is that his first touch is so perfectly setting him up to crush the ball with his second. And it's just, it looks so easy in the moment. It looks like FIFA when you sort of hit, like, hit the shoot button and then hit the final, like, shoot button you need to at the exact right moment, even as your player is still running in on goal. So they just smash it home perfectly. And in FIFA, that's just engineering and physics. In real life, it's just Kareem Benzema being magical when it comes to hitting it. I think it does take a slight deflection, but that takes nothing away from what was an incredible goal and good attacking play from Marcelo. But that was kind of it for him, because then going to sort of the more negative approach is that I think you see his vulnerability in that Madrid are so focused going down Valencia's right-hand side that there's so much space behind that Musa, I think at this point, is a significant bit faster than Marcelo. So that's always going to be a foot race that Madrid aren't going to love. But I think you also have... Marcelo's age showing, the lack of pace showing a little bit in some of the sequences, like I think in the second penalty that's conceded, he basically is just beaten for pace, thinks he can get there in time and doesn't, clears yeah. out uh, Maxi Gomez, I believe it that's, was, yeah, that's right, and that's how we end up with that penalty, but it's him sort of being slow to react there that causes those problems. So I think I'm with you, that was definitely a, a selection headache for Madrid. Yeah, and you, you, you dropped the name again, Yunus Musa. There, should we jump on the height chain for a second before sure. we before we board the train? Uh, we should note that in the first penalty, which sort of took, it had to be taken twice because yeah. he encroached into the box, and mm. uh, not only did he encroach, but uh, who was the Madrid player? It was Vasquez who encroached, uh, by like bending as well. over, I think, to like adjust his shin guards. He had like it was it was pretty in. it was yeah. pretty narrow the decision yeah. to, to take it again, but that was kind of a, the the uh, the comedy penalty where you know it was taken. Uh, Solly hit the post, and uh, and then um, you know it was it was buried by by uh, Musa, wasn't it? Yeah. Am I thinking right? That's right. Yeah. You are correct. Yep. Yes. So he it was all denied a goal, but through his own encroachment, shall we say? Yeah, which is a bummer because I wanted him to get that goal. I still feel like he's probably going to feel as though he scored, even if it yeah. gets called back. But this is the other thing. I do want to like spotlight Carlos Soler for a moment because. As you said, misses it, gets a, a sort of clear-cut rebound that at the very least should be put on frame, and instead he pings it off the post, Musa scores, it's called back. And in that moment now, we've got like, well, a double encroachment, we're going to get a retake. We've seen teams swap out the taker at that point, because you've missed one, you've got to get your head right. Not yeah. only does he step up and hit that one, then the next one, and then the next one. A hat trick of penalties for him in a game when he misses the first one. I think when he misses those first two chances... If I then told you he's going to score a hat trick of penalties, you would have probably been very confused. Uh, I know that I was sort of very confused by the end of this one. But I think immense credit to him for sticking with it and burying all three and sort of never second-guessing himself when it came to how he was taking them and where he was putting the ball. Yeah, solid nerves there. Kevin De Bruyne has got a lot to learn. As does Adamola Lookman, by the way. The, West, the less we talk about that penalty, the better. The That's West fine Ham, with me. Uh, West Ham Fulham penalty, I, which was the worst of the weekend. If you haven't seen it, you should definitely look it up. Uh, I've taken yeah, us away from Yunus Musa, though. I want to go back to him. Because in this game, the commentators were pointing out, I think Phil Shane was saying that uh, from what we've heard from Greg Berhalter, he does want to use Musa more centrally. And that surprised me when I first heard that. That surprised me watching the footage of him when Joe Lowry and I talked about the roster last week. Watching this game again, 
sort of more so embracing the idea that that's probably where he's going to be, I think I see it a bit more. Uh, Ryan, I know this isn't as much uh, like for you as it is for U.S. men's national team fans, but a couple of things I saw in this one were like in the opening minutes, Musa has a great uh, dribble out of pressure. He evades Marcelo. He dribbles through the middle. Then he kind of cuts and goes towards goal. The the pass in, I forget who it was for, but not as great, but just sort of dribbling out of pressure in the middle of the field. I thought that was really, really nice. I thought his decision-making under pressure was also good, and you can see how Greg Berhalter would sort of look to him to probably do the Weston McKinney role would be my guess as the number eight who can yeah. sort of slow things down, arrive late, create chances. But also I saw positional play from him that sometimes he would drift central, but then go back out wide or start wide and drift central based on where the ball was based on where his teammates were around him. So I think that awareness is going to be a big part of why Berhalter likes him. And the final thing was for the uh, own goal. We still have lots to talk about from this game, but for the own goal from Veron, for people who didn't see it, it's initially not given. Uh, La Liga does not have goal line tech, so the watch doesn't go off. We Wait. eventually get it on VAR. But so many Valencia players are frustrated and screaming the ball went over the line. This is Valencia on a counterattack with a lot of numbers committed forward. Madrid go back, right back down the other way and almost score a goal because Valencia are out of position. And if you go back and watch this, Musa is one of the players who is in that first wave of attackers as Valencia are countering. And as he realizes he's not going to get the ball, he slows down and drops central and stays central and drops back. So that when Madrid have that counterattacking opportunity, he's one of only two players back. And I don't think that that's a thing that anybody told him to do in that moment. I think it's a thing he knew to do based on the numbers committed and where the vulnerabilities could be. And that he plugged the middle slowed things down and I think a big part of why Madrid don't end up scoring not that it would have mattered because we end up getting the goal uh, given to Valencia but I think a big reason why they don't get as good of a chance is because he's there it's a 3v2 instead of a 3v1 he does a good job of splitting the difference so that the pass arrives a little bit late goalkeeper Dominic off his line and collects it but I thought those moments from Musa made me really really excited about a player that I was already super excited to see play for the national team. Very exciting stuff. And on that note, did you say you expect Musa to play more centrally for the, for the national team? That is what I believe Greg Berhalter so, has said, yes. So how does that fit with McKinney? Yeah, I think it means that he'll play maybe like 15 minutes uh, in the first game, and maybe he'll get the same in the second, or maybe he'll start. But my guess is he's looking at players that could deputize for McKinney because the sort of big three, as they've come to be called— don't tend to be fit at the same time. There always tends to be one who's injured and can't make it. And if okay. that's McKenny, I think we want other options because lately it has been Christian Roldan, or maybe not lately, but historically it's been Christian Roldan. And I think maybe Berhalter just wants to see what other options there are to make sure that he's kind of uh, exhausted all options before settling on it's going to be McKenny with Roldan underneath if something goes wrong or as the understudy if something goes wrong. So that would be my guess there. Thank you for clarifying that, and thank you for giving me further interest to watch this uh, potentially disastrous international break, which we have coming yeah, up buddy. very shortly. So we, it all eyes on that one. Uh, can we give a little bit of credit to Valencia, by the way? In, sure. Uh, in that they do really tend to do quite well against Real Madrid at home. I didn't realize this. I'd looked it up. But they don't, uh, Madrid have only won once at yeah. Mestalla since 2013, and that was back in 2018. So they do shut them out quite a lot. Uh, so impressive stuff for them. But... I thought that this Valencia team was supposed to be bad. Right. What happened here? Because they, you know, they kept selling off their players. They sold off for Torres to City. Uh, uh, Francis Coquelin went. Uh, Condogbia, uh, Rodrigo to Leeds. You know, all these mm-hmm. players. They keep they keep selling off players, but somehow 
they they looked pretty solid in this game, didn't they? I mean, it's a good reminder that Valencia used to be one of the best teams in Spain very yeah. consistently and occasionally won the league. And I think if you are able to keep all those players and have the investment that a club of their stature should be getting... I think that they are more consistently in that conversation than they have been. So maybe no credit to Peter Lim, but lots of credit to Javi Gracia for still finding a way to make this team good. And then obviously American sensation, uh, Yunus Musa is a big part of that too. We're calling <laughs> the sensation so. now. Don't yes. get me wrong, Valencia are amazing. This was their first win in five in the league. And well, there's uh, they, that. They, they are shipping goals. But still, to put up this kind... It's like they... It's, it's that proverbial, a bad team raising their game against a good team. Maybe it's that situation. I think it is. I think it's also, you know, uh, finding a way to win even when we have Sergio Ramos doing dark arts things. Uh, That is my final thing I wanted to talk about for (laughs) folks who did not see this one. The final goal is, of course, a penalty. Uh, It is created, I would say, by Yunus Musa, who gets the ball in the box. It pops up and then suddenly is no longer in front of him. And I don't know how that happened until the replay shows that Sergio Ramos... I think he is trying to, like, get a hand to Musa. I don't think he's trying to do what he ends up doing, but it just the timing is so hilariously perfect that it absolutely looks like he swats the ball away. Maybe he does know what he's doing and just forgets that VAR is there for a moment. But he definitely, like, whacks it away. <laughs> and then my favorite part about this, this is why he is the master of the dark arts that you and I have talked about, the master of Poopazery, is there is a fraction of a second in which you can see him do the kind of defender like oh no like I know what I did it's what Kyle Walker does when he concedes the penalty for City just that sort of like yeah that's me like eyes closed uh oh and then and then instantly the rest of his brain kicks in the dark arts kick in and he yells at Musa to you can see him say like come on keep playing like oh don't call for stupid calls and then immediately goes after him and forces Musa to stop appealing for a penalty and start trying to play again and then the referee does eventually call the play dead I think it takes him a minute to point to the penalty spot, but I think VAR says, like, stop it. you got to look at this. It's definitely going to be a penalty. But when that happens, Ramos then takes the ball and tries to resume play as though he's been fouled somehow. And I just loved that moment of how quickly his brain kicked from, you have made a mistake, to, you haven't made a mistake. It's their fault. Play on. They won't notice. Like, just how quickly that happened made me smile very, very hard. Did he get booked for that? No, he got booked earlier in the game, didn't he? He got uh, he got a booking earlier, did Sergio Ramos. The, and... the booking policy in this game was uh, was questionable <laughs> at best. Because, yeah, because, I mean, we've seen... I think it, he does get some... booked for that one, though. I could be wrong. I think, yes, he does. He does end up getting one. I think he evaded one somehow earlier in the game. Yeah. Uh, but, yes, there were some challenges in there that I thought were definitely going to be yellows or maybe second yellows that were not. That's right, because of all that, that was on the ranking of Sergio Ramos penalty giveaways. This is probably my favorite. It's just the, it's the straight up, up punching the ball away. Yeah. yeah. Again, <laughs> like, I, and I know I'm not trying to defend him at all. It's just we, we've talked about this previously, how like there have been fewer red cards because players, they know they can't get away with stuff like that. Like, and normally when your back is to goal, they're so tight together. You would think the referee's not going to be able to see this. The AR is not going to be able to see this. I'll just knock it away. But now with VAR, we know defenders are a bit more canny, a bit more aware of what's happening. So that's where I think he doesn't really mean to do it and then recognizes, like, I have absolutely knocked this away with my hand, and that's that <laughs> face. And then he tries to play on from there. But either way, definitely a penalty, definitely a card, definitely another penalty goal, and a 4-1 to win for Valencia.
I, for one, are looking forward to Tom Hardy playing him in the movie. That's all I can say. <laughs> Final game we should talk about. I have a little bit less to say about this one. Uh, is Lazio 1, Juve 1. Uh, a, I would say I would start off by saying a great goal from Cristiano Ronaldo. Not necessarily that he dribbles through seven and scores or shoots from 40 yards out, but just that it's Juve, I think, again, countering a counter. The ball goes wide to Juan Quadrado. Quadrado, he sort of drives to the end line, cuts it back, plays it into the six-yard box. Ronaldo finishes. But mm. Ronaldo, when this play develops, is a good six yards offside. And it's he something is. that Luis Suarez is so good at. And it takes that top-level player. I'm going to assume Lewandowski and Benzema would do the exact same thing. But it's the awareness of, I don't need to move. I don't need to try to get back on side. I don't need to check two. I'm just going to kind of occupy this space and know that the defense is going to collapse back because now Quadrado has bypassed the offside line. They're going to be scrambling to get into a shape that is roughly capable of defending Quadrado having the ball. All I need to then do is react to it, and that's exactly what he does. He holds his position, waits for them to collapse, and then just steps out like a half yard and maybe a half yard towards Quadrado and is then in the exact right spot to finish well. And it's just sort of that awareness in the moment that I think makes him so smart and so capable of scoring that type of goal. And for a while it feels like it's going to finish 1-0, it's going to be three points to Juve, it's the sort of inevitable climb, as we saw with Bayern versus Dortmund. But then Inzaghi steps in and says, no, 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 I know how to take throw-ins. <laughs> That's right. So the equaliser comes in the 95th minute in this game. Uh, with, uh, and if you can look at this clip online, Simone Inzaghi, uh, Lazio's coach, uh, he, it, it, who, who's taking the throw-on? It was... Uh, no, it wasn't. It, the throw-on went to Korea. Mm. Who took the throw-on? I can't remember. Was it Marusic? We can, we can just say it's Inzaghi because it feels like he's the one who actually took <laughs> so the, the, the throw-on. So the, the throw-on is being taken and it's going to be thrown back towards the defence. Inzaghi literally takes the thrower and turns his body towards yeah, the goal. <laughs> the ball yep. gets thrown to Crayer, who sort of does this little, lovely little nutmeg move, uh, beats two defenders, beats another player in the box, gets the ball to Casado, who does this lovely about turn and shoots for the uh, for the uh, for the yep. goal, for the equaliser. Basically, an MLS assist for Inzaghi. That's what yeah. we're going to call this one, right? I think, Incredible. I think so. I think that's fair. Um, I was not thrilled when I like went to look at this game after the fact to see what had happened I see one-to-one and whenever that happens with a team that has an American in there I think okay but maybe like I really do do this every time I look at the scoreline and then think okay but hopefully McKinney was on the field when they were up one nil or when the goal was scored and then not on the field when uh, the goal uh, was scored against in this case, it was the opposite of that one. He does not start this game. He comes on in the 76th minute, a double substitution, and then the goal happens. So that automatically raised my fear of like, oh no, did he switch off? Did he let somebody run through the middle? Uh, watching the goal again, uh, I, there's nothing he could have done about Inzaghi unless he shoved him away and didn't let him coach the game. So I don't put any fault there. I honestly don't think he has any blame here. I think he, in fact, does sort of well to react to what his teammates are doing. I put a lot of this one on Rabiot, uh, but I, I would also like mm. to hear your thoughts, Ryan, on if you have any uh, blame towards Weston McKinney. Uh, not necessarily, but I will argue, I will contest that that double substitution, it's Dibbler and McKinney coming on mm-hmm. for Ronaldo and Kulisevsky, was kind of a turning, almost a turning yeah. point. It was only 15 minutes to go, but this was the point where Kulisevsky was doing a decent job of yes, on was. the counter, and Dybala, who has been pretty poor lately, wasn't offering much on a no. counter-attacking basis either. So they kind of, when McKinney and Dybala came on, they kind of lost a lot of their potency going forward. So yeah, that, I think for me, that's, was the, the, that's the, the difference. Not necessarily think, McKinney's fault, just a di- different kind of 
player, I suppose. Yeah, I, and I do think that probably I, I could have this wrong, but my read on this was that uh, Kulishevsky was was going to be a planned substitution. Had been very involved. I think plays the ball in for Quadrado, so he gets the MLS assist for that goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that substitution was probably Andrea Pirlo taking off an attacking player who's a little bit wide. You put on Weston McKinney, who can do that sort of right center mid, right mid job and do a bit more defensive work. Mm-hmm. And then Ronaldo gets injured. I don't know the severity of it at this point, but it's basically he goes to kick a ball doesn't make contact because the defender gets there first and instead kind of kicks the underside of the defender's foot. There's definitely some pain there. He subs off, and I don't think it was meant to be a double sub. I think it was meant to be McKenney comes on to help see out the game defensively. Yeah. Ronaldo continues to be that threat of Almorata, who had, a, had an otherwise, I think, pretty good game, is there to hold the ball up and kind of transition into attack. But then when you have to bring off Ronaldo, it does change like structurally and fundamentally what you're trying to do because Dybala is not Cristiano Ronaldo. No. Uh, so yeah, that's a good shout then, Ryan. I think that substitution does probably play more of a part than I had realized it would. So maybe not necessarily McKenney's fault, but like is sort of involved. Yeah. Uh, I did then want to spotlight a couple things that do happen in this one. I think as we're very near the end of the game and maybe there are some tired legs, you get the ball in the corner with, I believe, Joaquin Correa. Uh, he is closed down by Benton Coeur, who's the center midfielder for Juve. Yeah, and then Quadrado. Yeah, I thought he was did. very impressive in this game. And I don't think this is his fault either, but I think he is tired. I think he's just trying to make sure that Correa doesn't get around him. Mm. But then we have Juan Cuadrado come back to kind of help with a double team. But it's a thing we see a lot of the time with teams trying to defend Lionel Messi, is that somehow when you have more defenders around him, it creates more opportunities for him because everybody's so scared of getting beat and nobody wants to dive in that you have... Like what we've called before, like a diffusion of responsibility. Neither player feels like it's their job to step in and win. So both are sort of doing half defense. And then if you are a player with the kind of attacking impetus that Correa has, he just splits the difference and goes right through them. And that's when you start to see Juve scramble a little bit. I think Demiral was there and, and had a good like sort of uh, angle on the ball, I think could have made a play. And this is where Rabio just decides to come charging in, which is... Maybe you can understand, like, oh, he wants to help out. He's trying to make a play on the ball. Except that he literally touches Casado on the way past him to try to make that play on the ball and leaves that space in the middle for Casado to then kind of settle on the turn and have that shot. And it's a great goal, and it's great work from Correa, mm-hmm. but some individual mistakes certainly causing problems for Juve. That's fair enough. But to their credit, I think up until that point, I thought Benzico and Rabiot were pretty good in this game. And they did yeah. a lot to keep Correa under wraps, who was... Excellent. Maybe even the best player on the, on, on the field in this one. Uh, just, just another note, if we can just go back to Ronaldo. Yeah. I did look into his injury, um, and according to the notes, um, he got uh, the, the injury is called, I got COVID last time there was an international break, so I'm going to twing something so I don't have to go with Portugal again. <laughs> that's what the injury, that's what the doctor called it. So um, that's, that's an interesting one. We'll see that, how that develops. But he needs a bacchiotomy, just... that's what you're telling me? <laughs> So just go and, and just just to re-emphasize what you're saying about the goal and how good he was when when that goal was scored, it just made me immediately think of Lewandowski and Haaland and how yeah. they are the kings of movement in the box and yep. how Ronaldo was you know he he preceded them as being mm-hmm. the king of that kind of reading the positions perfectly, knowing that Juan Cuadrado is going to absolutely whack the ball into traffic and knowing what the defensive line is going to do. That was very, very impressive. I had exactly the same thoughts as you when that happened. So, yeah, a good one from Ronaldo. Hope he recovers from not going to Portugal uh, OSIS soon. (laughs) 
I hope he does as well. Uh, that leaves us in a strange Serie A position with Milan on top, Sassuolo second, Napoli third, Roma fourth, then Juve in fifth, Lazio uh, back in ninth. But again, I think only six points. Sell, uh, <laughs> only six points separating, there we go, I got it out, Uh, separating Lazio from top of the table Milan. So still a fairly tight Serie A. I think my inability to talk means that we should probably bring this episode to a close. Ryan, anything else you wanted to talk about before we call it quits for the day? I just there's one little game we haven't discussed this and it's not in the Mm -hmm. notes, Taylor, but it caught my eye this weekend. Torquay versus Crawley in the lower leagues. Did you see what happened in this one? (laughs) So it finished six five to Crawley. Wow. It was at the 90-minute mark, it was 2-1 to Torquay. At the well, end of full time, after 21 minutes of extra time, it was 3-3. And then it finished 6-5. Basically, if you check this one out online, there was, a goalkeeper was knocked unconscious. There was like a, a really long delay, which caused uh, all this uh, um, uh, extra time to happen. But after 118 minutes, it finished 6-5 to Crawley. So if you're uh, at, a, at a loss for your time later on today, take a look at Torquay Crawley. Wild stuff. <laughs> Can we make this a recurring segment of like Ryan finds an interesting thing from the lower leagues? It could be championship, could be league one, could be league two, could be even further down. But I do enjoy the randomness of Ryan bringing up random games. And I, I think it, uh, it adds some spice. Do you want to make that a recurring thing or is that too much work? No, it would be my honor. I would love there, that. There we go. All right. We'll have to add that or you have to remind me so I don't immediately forget. But until <laughs> we do add that, Ryan Bailey, I just wanted to thank you once again for taking all the time to talk to me about all four games uh, that we paid attention to this weekend. Tay-Tay, always a pleasure, never a chore.